Monkey to like a the podcast project of the Fenebulist by Leopold Lambert. Today, death embrace in American capitalism is Pamela Brown. Today, my guest is uh, Pamela Brown, uh, who's a, a PhD candidate in sociology at the New School, and uh, she's a co-founder uh, of the Occupy Wall Street uh, group's uh, Occupy Student Debt Campaign and Strike Debt, uh, that will have very much to do with uh, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, she's also part of the board of the Brecht Forum, and she's a member of the People Investigation of Wall Street as well as a member of the National Planning Committee for the U.S. Social Forum. Pamela, <laughs> it's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Uh, it's a great pleasure. And uh, maybe we can even uh, introduce the conversation by saying that we, we actually met at Occupy Wall Street. And we're, oh. uh, back then, we were both part of uh, another group that even uh, uh, was not mentioned here. But uh, maybe we'll, we'll come to it at some point. But uh, maybe just to start the conversation, would you mind telling us maybe um, what uh, what your PhD is about and what you're up to those days? Uh, sure. So uh, before I went to went back to graduate school, I was a filmmaker, and I worked in the film industry in Los Angeles. And uh, when I moved back to New York City, I um, enrolled in a sociology of media program. So my specialty is actually in media. Um, looking at memory as well as narrative. Um, my, my work in film, as all filmmakers, was deeply connected to narrative, um, and, uh, but particularly in film development, where you work very frequently with writers. It's, uh, it's really all about narrative and how you tell stories. And I find that that is, um, is not only connected to my work in, in film and also in school, but also uh, very much related to, to my activism. Okay. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is, is very specific of, uh, of uh, the United States. And uh, so we're going to try to be uh, as, as clear and descriptive as possible for people who are, who are not necessarily familiar with, uh, with the situation. But I think in general, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of paradigmatic of, of the Western world in general, even though it might, uh, it might not it might have various degree of implementation depending on the country. But um, essentially what we're going to talk about today is how uh, uh, the notion of debt and the implementation of debt in, uh, in the U.S. is very much uh, intertwined with, their, with the notion of race and how, how uh, society is built, uh, is built around uh, uh, normative processes and, uh, and, uh, and economic pro- processes that, that make them, uh, that kind of, uh, unfolds uh, that unfolds of uh, violence on uh, uh, based on those two things. So um, we're going to try to be a little bit st- uh, structured in our conversation, but I mean, uh, at the same time, since those two things are are very much uh, uh, um, uh, acting together, then we we obviously will will keep going from one to the other. Uh, so. Um, so Pam, would you like maybe to introduce us a little bit what 
in your in your group in your two groups at Occupy Wall Street how you've been uh, going back into history to maybe see how those mechanisms were structured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, let's see. So the group that we were a part of was Empowerment and Education, and um, the Occupy Student Debt Campaign emerged from from that work. Um, and so when I started thinking about debt, it was more related to student debt and, um, you know, more of a personal visceral experience with the system of student debt. And through that work, though, um, and I think this is true of the entire group of us, we started to sort of just pull back like leaf by petal by petal by petal kind of to understand the system and um a lot of my work in sociology is very cultural and it always is relevant to to history and as i said narrative which is always about uh framing of time and so um so i ended up trying to understand uh really the emergence of sally may because Of course, when you talk about student debt, you always end up talking about this quasi-governmental um, group that was once a part of the government, then sort of related and now private, um, who seems to control a huge amount of the student debt. Mostly they do. Um, and so I started to try to understand this formation and what became very obvious was that it was a direct replica of Fannie Mae. And so Fannie Mae is the uh, sister of, of Sally Mae and Fannie Mae was developed in, uh, as part of the 1934 housing act. Sally Mae came out of the 1968 education act. And so um, Fannie Mae, was designed to um, support banks because banks did not want to take on mortgages, broadly speaking. And so prior really to the 1930s, mortgages were very short. They were only about five years and uh, you'd have to put at least 40% down to obtain one. Um, so it was a very different kind of environment than we than we have today. So uh, the coming out of the depression, there was a lot of rabble rousing, and people were demanding a much more socialist state. And so the government decided, in this context of you know very real dissent, to give people an opportunity, and that opportunity was to obtain credit, to obtain the credit to buy a home, and. In order to do that, they extended mortgages first from 15 years through this agency, Fannie Mae, then to 30, so that it was spread out over more time. Banks, of course, did not want any part of keeping someone's mortgage on their books for 30 years. And so Fannie Mae became the agency through the government that, uh, that uh, repurchased these mortgages, took them off of bank books, and basically created securitization of mortgages, as well as provided a guarantee so that people could put only 20% down in order to obtain property. So the purpose of all this was actually to stimulate the stated purpose. Let me say the stated purpose was to stimulate the labor market through construction 
and to employ people. So then people would work, they would have jobs, which they didn't have in, in 19, in the early 30s because of the depression. And then they would be able to buy a house and they would, you know, settle down in the suburbs. And what we know clearly is that, um, that the, uh, the Federal Housing Authority, FHA, uh, sorry, the Federal Housing Administration, they um, defined who could buy and who could not buy. And they did that by uh, something we all know now called redlining. And so they very clearly and intentionally uh, excluded African-Americans from this. And so you cut to this during this whole period, there's now starting to be African-American uh, resistance and um, planning is, ha is already starting for the March on Washington, okay? And um, this is coming subsequent to the Harlem Renaissance, which was also known as the New Negro uh, Movement, which was very much about this sort of cultural experience of remaking the understand the self-understanding uh, for African-Americans of their identity within the society and figuring out kind of how to move forward post-slavery um, art through through art and literature and music um, so that was a cultural movement and um, and so you cut to uh, you know this new understanding people are starting to be active they're starting to sort of rabble rouse and make demands and say you know we want to be we want access to this uh this housing market we want access to the american dream and um not to get too detailed but the Amer the ideology and the belief in the american dream actually emerges simultaneous with this it didn't there wasn't like always the american dream it was actually something that uh, began, the first notation of it, I believe, is in, maybe it was 1929, somewhere around that period of time. And it was in, the, in a book, I can't quite remember the name of the book, but this was really taken up. And the American dream immediately became associated with the house with the picket fence, the suburban house with the picket fence, 1950s style. So you get to the 1960s, and you have substantial demands being made. And it's within this context that you have the, uh, the first of uh, the Civil Rights Act, which ensures for the first time in 1968 that redlining is no longer legal, actually, and that the government, because it was a government agency that was um, doing this, that was allowing this and creating the ability for banks to, to very much exclude blacks from the housing market, um, was curtailed through this through this legal process that said that African Americans had a right to fair housing. This uh, Civil Rights Act of nineteen, I believe it's nineteen sixty four, is also known as the Fair Housing Act. Um, and so this is when African Americans for the first time enter into the housing market en masse. That's not to say that blacks did not own property before this, because they did, we did, but it is to say that en masse this was a major expansion. And the other part of this was that there was like this uh, demand that was very existential for this, you know, this to be a part of American society and this American dream. And emerges from this, this, how, this education act which is the creation of Sally Mae. And so we knew that 
by creating Fannie Mae that guaranteeing loans, uh, taking them off the books of banks, that automatically the market expanded enormously and you went from about 40% home ownership to about 65% home ownership by the time the Fair Housing Act was passed. So you had a massive increase in people owning property, okay? Um, and this student, um, this I almost called it the Student Debt Act because it was the exact same thing. Sally Mae guaranteed student debt and also took those loans off the books of banks and actually even back then um, created securities. That's how they did this. That's how they did this transfer. So they, the government really knew fully that, um, that the education market, if you want to call it that, was going to expand in a similar way as the housing market expanded, right? And they, and the way that people were paying for school for their children, which was, you know, much less expensive at the time, all that, but that was because they had wealth to draw upon and they had that wealth to draw upon because they were able to become uh, a part of this growing housing market. By the time you get to the Education Act, the housing market has pretty much plateaued at around 68%, okay? And... Um, so the question becomes, how do you expand this market beyond that? And that's when you start to get these very risky products, right? These subprime types of types of lending, because now we have to figure out how do we expand to a whole other category of people who've been excluded before, right? And so, um, so what happened immediately was that the people who had to take out student debt, it was always it was always racialized. It was not really in the early days of student debt really um, about white students having student debt. That's a recent phenomenon. The phenomenon that was normalized was that if you wanted to go to school, the best way to do that as an African American student was to borrow from this system. And so today you have, you know, 81% of African American students with an average of approximately, uh, sorry, a median of approximately $30,000 in student debt, which is massively higher than really the horrible, horrible statistics amongst white students as well. But it's still really, it, that discrepancy really shows up there. And so if you look back at the history of this, you can really see that, um, you know, as you start to look all the way back into the emergence of this debt system, that it was racialized from the very start. And it's really impossible to enter, to, to like unravel the way in which it's so deeply intertwined, you know, race and the debt economy. There's really not any kinds of separations that we make are in some sense at least false and come out of, I think, a um, a framing that looks very in, in very recent history, more starting in in the seventies, and we can you know talk more about that for sure. Mm -hmm. And and I suppose there the the idea that we should separate one or the other also comes from the the illusion of uh, I, I read I read recently that seventy five percent of white Americans think that they live in a in a post racial society, which 
I'm, I'm not quite sure what it, what it means, but... Uh, the statistics that I read about that once were 83% of whites oh, believe that we're either post-racial or uh, near, nearly post-racial, whereas 83% of blacks believe that we are po- uh, 83% of blacks believe that we are not post-racial and those and you know in this context I mean oftentimes we have the language within social movements of people of color we like to use sort of this blanketing approach but I don't I really think that given the historical context specific to African Americans that uh, it's appropriate to look at statistics affecting specifically African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And this is one that does that. I don't have any number for what Hispanics or Asians or other people think. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we could uh, describe a little bit what uh, uh, American society also uh, uh, looks like on a daily basis uh, based on this uh, on this debt. Uh, uh, for mm-hmm. people who don't necessarily live here, because I think we're all familiar with the idea of uh, having a mortgage or something like that, which already already suppose an idea that you might want to own your house, which is already problematic, right. I suppose. Uh, but uh, but we're also looking at uh, we're also looking at colleges that uh, that cost uh, I don't know around. I don't yeah. know the median, but like let's say let's say forty thousand dollars a year or mm-hmm. something like that, uh, that also generates uh, debt in uh, in the loans that they require. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not speaking about the fact that when you're at school, obviously you don't earn money, so you do you do have to 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 add Survive. to that uh, uh, the the price of life. Uh, same thing for cars. Same thing for uh, a lot of things. Uh, we'll we'll come to medical debt as well, which is a, another huge issue here. Uh, but in general, it seems to be it seems to be organized by the idea that uh, the ideology is that you should pay later. Like there is a kind of invitation that it's okay. Like you should trust the you should trust the system that mm-hmm. you will be able to pay later. But uh, consume and uh, consume these things, and you you'll pay later. And uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that I think that there's a it's the problem is that I don't it's an interesting way that you put it about the ideology kind of of paying later but the the, the problem is that there's no way to pay now right because mm-hmm. things that you need are so expensive um, it's estimated that at least in the past the estimate was that you'll make an, a million dollars more in your lifetime with a college degree um, and you're also going to be insulated from unemployment much more than someone with only a high school degree for example um and if you have a graduate degree those numbers only improve Mm -hmm. and so as the labor market has become more and more precarious people have been trying to do things to um to shore themselves up and one of the main things that we're all told to do is go to school you know, but there's no, if there's no way to pay $40,000 a year out of pocket, because the reason that there's no way for some people to pay that is because they were for whatever the reason, and it not only race, but also just their own economic situation when they came to this country, their families, you know, all of that. Um, but we're not a part of the initial growth period 
of the uh, housing market, which is where people in this country, in American society, in the United States, built their their reservoir of wealth. So the people who were part of that surely come from families, generally speaking, who were able to pay the you know fifty thousand dollars a year for a college education. It's only the people who were not a part of that growth mm -hmm. through their family history um, who are not able to pay. Yeah, and I super, I'm, super, I, I'm sorry because what I, what I also meant to say in the pay later ideology is the fact that this idea is only okay if it is made within uh, a mutual, something that's mutually beneficial to both right. parties involved. Whereas in this case, we very well know that it is one more capitalist uh, apparatus of, 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 uh, of dependency that's being created over the, the mm -hmm. profits that's going to generate. And it's necessary. I mean, the problem now is that we cannot grow or even make money at all without this debt. So literally, the money for, you know, money comes into being through debt. So it's not as if many people understand debt as I'm going to a bank and I'm going to borrow money, right? And you understand that within the framing similar to the way in which friends borrow from each other, mm -hmm. right? So you give me a book that you are sharing with me mm -hmm. and you say, I'm going to lend you this book. And I say, I'll borrow it. I'll get it back to you soon, right? But that's not the case. It would be for, for bank. It would be... I, if I came in, I said, I want to, you know, it would uh, borrow a book from you, Leopold, okay? And then all of a sudden you waved a magic wand and you materialized somehow a book, exactly the book that I wanted to borrow, right? Mm -hmm. And then I take that book and even though it was my act of saying, I want to borrow a book that allowed for the creation of that book itself, I am now indebted, even though I'm actually... At a set, in at least a sense, a creator, right? So it's the same thing with money, actually. Um, money exists through debt. And so when you go to the bank and you say, I need to go to college now and I'm going to borrow a total of $100,000 for my four years, each time, each year that you take the $25,000 out, uh, the bank actually makes that money that money comes into the economy at that point and did not exist. And that's a that's a really, I think, important issue in debt because it does rely on what you say, this mutuality of relationship, but that's made invisible in our discourse, mm -hmm. right? It's only the banks. The banks are like giving you something when in reality you are required to actually create that money. Mm -hmm. And... I had a question uh, that came to my mind on my way here to your office. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw I saw a young man in there in the subway that was holding a little um, a little uh, folder of uh, the Navy, and I was mm -hmm. wondering how much uh, how much the enrollment of uh, in particular of African American uh, young men and women were based on this idea that like they just cannot pay their yeah. debt right now, and and how some things that you would not immediately or at least I would not immediately associate with uh, mm -hmm. the idea of, of precarity uh, uh, of the, the army itself right. uh, uh, as 
and not any army, the American armies right. that we know we know what they mm-hmm. do. And and so how how is it intertwined as well? well? I suppose it is. It is. Yeah. It's. I mean, you're hitting on a really interesting um, point that I might have that I thought of mentioning when we we're talking about the housing ad, which is the GI Bill. Okay, and um, the GI Bill was introduced. I want to say it was World War Two. The reason I believe that is because my father was in World War Two and he received. A G, what's called a GI Bill, and that was how he was able to go to college. He had no interest in the military. He finds the idea of being an African-American person, and it, maybe he would actually call himself uh, Caribbean. He's first-generation American. Um, uh, coming in to fight on behalf of, of America to be deeply... Uh, ironic in a very cynical kind of a way you know so but his way of going to school was through going into the military my mother as well um they both received gi bills and they both were able to use that to go to school and they were actually somewhat unique being in the north because many uh african-american people went into the army or the navy air force marines the military and um and in order to receive the GI Bill, beginning in like World War II, and were denied that once they left the military. And so it was kind of all for naught. Um, but nevertheless, um, the GI Bill is a major way that people go to school. And actually, it's really the site of extremely predatory student loan lending. Because I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but uh, many of the uh, the for-profit institutions target veterans at, who have access to these federal uh, funds, and I'm not sure how that breaks down in terms of debt and tuition and you know government uh, stipends or whatever that whatever comprises that. But um, what I do know is that it's become such a serious problem that. Uh, people, uh, politicians who are also connected to the military even, even came out and said that we have to stop this predatory um, student lending, particularly to, to veterans uh, coming out of the Iraq war, especially right now, who want to come use their GI benefits to, um, to go to school. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times now, for-profit institutions are actually targeting um, veterans. And I would say that there's kind of, I mean, there's a joke. It's not really a funny joke, but that the options available to, you you know, lower income black kids are really, you know, prison or the military. Mm -hmm. And it's like, take your pick. And that's kind of a widely expressed understanding, you know, amongst african-americans of what the options really are i see and it, it, it needs to be reminded here that uh despite their their overwhelming uh uh pride and love uh, for americans for their army uh, uh <laughs> in in ways that are highly problematic and uh, and that are uh for people coming from outside the country quite uh quite uh, surprising i suppose uh despite all that as the situation of uh, a lot of veterans when uh, when they come back uh, not not even speaking about the 
potential psychological problems that might have e that might have came from from their experience is the economic situation of those veterans is highly precarious mm -hmm. it's absolutely it's it's really very true and a lot of that comes out of i mean the only people who become who go into the military you don't generally find middle-class kids going into the military anymore mm -hmm. you know um it's not considered heroic Uh, widely, it's considered to be a path out of uh, poverty, in a sense, you know. So you really are sending uh, poor and exploited young people to kill um, poor and exploited other, you know, people across the world. And it's just a, um, it's just such an incredibly... Uh, immoral uh, system uh, that leads to the military. But of course, we know in the United States that war drives everything. And a lot of the spending around, you know, you have the pictures of Rosie the Riveter, right? And this is one of the early um, understandings of feminism, women joining the labor force and participating with the war machine. Very ironic, very much, you know, we're always caught in these contradictions, right? And it's sort of, um, you know, some of these contradictions are very deep. In order to get out of poverty here, you've got to, you know, go kill someone in another uh, country, right? I mean, it's just, it's so incredibly um, dark that it's hard to really imagine it. Mm -hmm. But it's our reality. <laughs> mm. um, well, so maybe uh, we're going uh, to now go back to, to the, um, the works that you've been doing with those, uh, those two groups by mm -hmm. Wall Street that mm -hmm. I was evoking at the beginning. And uh, uh, here I might do a little bridge with a conversation I was having uh, on Archipelago with uh, Eileen Joy about, about this idea of... Uh, of uh of uh, the several things was well, they're declaring default on debts that you, you're going to talk uh, i'm going to ask you about and also the rolling jubilee which was one of the one of the certainly one of the most uh uh, uh effective uh projects that occupy has been uh, has been creating so can you maybe describe a little bit uh, this this work you sure so um coming out of the occupy student debt campaign Um, one of the things was that what we were proposing was that people refuse to pay because, in a sense, there's not really any other option. When we started the campaign, five million uh, American students or former students were already in default, five million. Um, a year later, uh, there were six million. So it went up by literally a million in one year. So we were saying that if everyone, if people signed our pledge and agreed that if we collectively come to a million people who are willing to say I'm not going to pay um, or I can't pay, right, that um, then we could possibly have an effective, um, you know, strike, actually. That's only really about maybe $27 billion that would have been withheld from the system. And when I say only, what I'm really meaning is that it really wouldn't affect very much at all. The system can go on without $27 billion. That's not enough money to really impact it. So, you know, I think that we always knew that it was symbolic. It was not actually real, a real thing to do. Because the truth is it didn't, there was no way to actually accomplish 
that in the end because even you go to your grave, there's no way out of student debt. All of the um, all of the laws to protect the consumer have already been eroded. You can't go bankrupt. Even on private loans, you can't declare bankruptcy. You know, they're going to um, levy your bank accounts. They're going to garnish your wages. They're going to take part of your Social Security. It's not something that ends once you have student debt. So there was no way really for students to refuse to pay. So um, knowing that, the idea emerged that we needed to figure out a way to build something akin to a union, some way, some, some organizational form where people could bring together all of their different kinds of debt and maybe even say, well, Bank of America or Chase or whatever, it doesn't matter, any bank, um, could be targeted in some way through a real campaign that would actually have economic consequences unlike the original our original proposal and so that was how uh, strike debt really emerged because we all in the year of working on the issue and thinking about the issue and studying the issue really understood that debt was um, as fungible as money meaning that sometimes people were using their credit card to pay for food because they had to pay their student loan. So people were going, or they needed to see a doctor. And so then they would end up with medical debt because they were paying their student loan and they felt really, you know, um, they had to pay, right? And so, um, so that was our understanding was that the separation between any one form of debt was, was very much um, a false separation, right? That there really, you couldn't say just student debt or just mortgage debt. Yet, the strange thing is that they feel very separate and they feel very different and they also impact different people very differently. So um, so that was the ideology the, the, uh, of, um, of, of the development really of strike debt. And a, um, a, a person had been on the student debt uh, listserv for quite some time and proposed the idea of a debt fairy. But at the time that, uh, that he proposed that idea, he really, um, it was not possible to do that with student debt and so there wasn't a lot of interest. So when we formed Strike Debt, I actually got in touch with him and I said, I think you should proposed this idea and pretty quickly that idea became the rolling jubilee and so um and so the idea behind the rolling jubilee originally was that people did not understand debt as a moral issue fundamentally um and didn't really understand debt as something other than like a personal burden that they had took taken on and that they were responsible for due to either individual bad choices along this kind of thinking. But it was it's very individualized feeling. And so the aim of the Rolling Jubilee was to um, to highlight through a um, through purchasing defaulted debt just like a, any kind of um, debt collector does it's a market that believe it or not anyone can yeah. enter into Let, and you let's can... explain it actually maybe oh okay that, because yeah. uh, okay so yeah. the rolling jubilee the goal was to buy fifty thousand dollars in defaulted debt and what happens when you default on debt is um you 
uh, that deck you are marked by the credit surveillance system, um, aka the credit bureaus, TransUnion, um, Experian, and Equifax, um, and they are monitoring us constantly for to see how we pay bills once we're a part of this credit system. So, um, so maybe let's take the example where I owe a thousand dollars. As a offer of a medical debt that I could not pay, so right. I defaulted. What happens to these thousand dollars? Okay, so that thousand dollars is is um, which obviously a medical thousand debt is a, is a very <laughs> medical debt is a little bit different from other forms of debt. So oh. let's just take credit card debt. Sure, okay, sure. so you defaulted on your credit card. You owed you owed a thousand dollars and you couldn't pay your monthly fee, and so now it's been ninety days. And you haven't been able to pay a monthly fee, and they're calling you constantly. You're on their dialer. You get constant calls, but you still can't pay. And um, and so the bank finally says, "Okay, account closed. We are going to write off that debt." And so they write that debt off, and then that debt becomes part of a portfolio, which is available for a debt for a debt collector to purchase. And so, in other words, you've made a promise to your credit card company, and then that credit card company says, I'm going to transfer that promise to a purchaser who will purchase the promise that this person made to to me, to the card credit card mm -hmm. company, right? And we'll and purchase it for maybe ten dollars, right? And we're gonna purchase it, right? We're willing to sell it to fire sale for ten cents on the dollar, maybe less, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere in that range. Okay. And so then a debt collector gets that and in the meantime You've accrued a lot of fees, and your bill is way more than a thousand dollars now. Now it's fifteen hundred that you can't pay still, and now you have someone else who is trying to collect that money from you. Um, and so that's generally how our system works. When it comes to medical debt, there are some slight um, slight differences, which we probably don't really need to get too into. But um, basically the same principle applies that you need to go to the doctor. And oftentimes a person who, the people who get medical debt are not people who were, uh, you know, quote unquote irresponsible and didn't have health insurance. Most of the people in, in the United States who have medical debt actually had health insurance, okay? But they didn't have enough health, health insurance and oftentimes they became extremely ill. For example, you get cancer and you find out that your insurer, this is not so now with um, the reforms to healthcare, this is less true. But, um, well, a very a real example of this is that, you know, we have an epidemic of breast cancer in the United States. And it used to be the case that health insurance companies were not required to pay for reconstructive surgery. And so all of a sudden you need, you find out that you first have cancer, second that you could die of that cancer, mm -hmm. that you have to go through a year of, you know, horrifying treatments during which you may not be able to work, right? And then you find out that in order to have reconstructive surgery, that you will have to pay out of pocket for that. And you will be allowed to pay that off in debt. And back in, I want to say probably 2004, when a friend of mine went through this, 
Um, it was about $50,000. And, um, and, you know, I mean, basically you're facing some pretty harsh decisions. So that's how someone ends up with medical debt. Mm -hmm. You may have coverage for your insurance, but there may, for your life, you know, but you may not have coverage for, for other aspects of your life, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's how people accumulate that kind of medical debt. Um, and oftentimes that rolls into other forms of debt because all of a sudden you're trying to pay these medical bills and then you can't pay your mortgage. So um, there are actually activists who work with literally with just the group of people who cannot pay their mortgage and are being foreclosed due to cancer, specifically. Mm -hmm. So... So anyway, so with medical debt, that's kind of um, how it works. And so that debt is available for sale. Um, although, as I want to say, there are complexities that I'm sort of alighting. Um, and so the Rolling Jubilee decided to start with medical debt and then to roll onto other forms of debt, which never actually happened. Um, but I think that the Rolling Jubilee... The goal was initially to raise $50,000 before we knew it. It was $500,000. Um, and it's now probably, I think, about $700,000 that was raised in total. And maybe $14 million of medical debt that was paid off. Yeah. Maybe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me just uh, re-clarify. Uh, this thing is that the Rolling Jubilee is basically doing the exact same things that a debt collector is doing, which is buying someone's debt, but instead of obviously asking for it, it's to, uh, right. to I'm sorry. cancel it. <clears throat> yeah, there, the idea was to to pay that debt as a, um, as a form of mutual aid, mm -hmm. um, as a form of solidarity, and, to, um, and so that that person would not owe it anymore, mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah. yeah, and and because mm -hmm. of the rule of the games, let's say it's like maybe uh, if if you you can still do it if you give like ten dollars to the Rolling Jubilee, the Rolling Jubilee will be able to buy five hundred dollars of debt with your ten dollars or something. It's something like that. Something I don't, I don't know the ratio, Yeah, but, I mean yeah. it depends exactly. It's not but much it's more. Right. That's not that's not one dollar for exactly. $1. So it was crowdfunded, mm -hmm. and individuals made uh, small donations like forty dollars. Is the average, you know, some people were donating only a dollar, um, but people were really moved by this idea of the Rolling Jubilee more as a charity than as a political act in the end. Um, you know, people didn't really, the politics of, there, there were a lot of complications and the politics of the Rolling Jubilee became really problematic. I think that it's a, a very good example of how capitalism really has these amazing, amazing ways of capturing um, not only the financial life, but like the social life in profound ways. Because as the people who started the Rolling Jubilee became more and more embedded in the work of the Jubilee um, and encountered people saying, you know, this is really helping me, all of this, even though it really wasn't. I'll t explain. I mean, it's really not. So the money was really not. It, in some sense, the money was owed because the banks have a legal right to transfer their promise to a debt, your promise to them, to a debt collector. But 
the only way that that is monitored is through the credit surveillance system, which has about a 75% inaccuracy rate. And so the thing is that in order to, to keep uh, a debt on someone's credit report, that relies on that individual not challenging it very frequently. Frequently, once an individual d would challenge that remaining on their credit report, um, they would have to remove it because they actually don't have any evidence of this. With medical debt, it's very complicated because there are laws that really protect the sharing of information, and it's not 100% clear within those laws whether or not it's legitimate to share that you had cancer with a debt collector. So... Um, so the problem becomes that, in a sense, another strategy would have been to attack the credit surveillance system because, you know, most of this money was like very old debt. It wasn't like someone who just defaulted. Also, with medical debt, the other problematic thing is that... Um, Let's say that if a debt collector contacts you about it, you actually can recontact the hospital at any point in that collection process and still work out a deal with the hospital. So it's a little bit of a different sort of a, a, a situation, and there's not full clarity that, well, I would just say that I don't think that spending $700,000 of, of good hard-earned money to eradicate a not a, not not a re to alleviate people's emotional suffering simply because they don't know they don't have the knowledge to uh, alleviate that in in a free way, right? Um, I think that there's a lot of problem to that, and it really came out of the sense that many people had of being in, who were working on the campaign of being deeply indebted themselves. And finally feeling like they were doing something of value that was helping others, even when it really, really was not. And even when originally the campaign was not really meant as a charity, it was meant as a political act to strike debt. That was the idea. And so um, the benefit of helping others was yes, embedded into that process to some degree, but the idea was to raise awareness of this secondary market and to bring forward a questioning of its morality and to deepen that questioning by going for things that were less, you know, clearly unethical forms of debt than medical debt like credit card debt or payday loans. And so the inability of the ruling Jubilee to, to roll, per se, to these other forms of debt really had a lot to do with the ways in which people understood themselves and also a, a deep problem understanding the um, interrelatedness of race and class, right? So understanding debt starting in the 70s means that you frame out, you don't include into the narrative, right? You have a whole story that you're going to tell about debt and you're going to frame out this entire history of, of civil rights, of activism that has directly led to the way in which debt is constructed and why it is that 62% uh, of you know African Americans walked into a bank while black and got subprime mortgages even when their income was 150 to 250,000 right so so in other words the inability of the campaign to understand debt as 
um, to to validate well first the campaign in some sense validated this idea that there was a legitimate secondary market which was the thing that it was trying to invalidate right in the end it was saying we're just going to keep paying into this and we're going to keep paying seven hundred thousand plus dollars into this while it there was really just paying into this like extreme capitalism and extremely not deserving of this this enormous resources when the original idea was not to become a charity but was to ha, was a political action um and much of that was derailed through um our, our own terrible thinking around uh around the ideology of horizontality and consensus mm -hmm. because Straight debt was actually not originally meant to be a horizontal group fully. It was meant to allow people to participate, but not. But there was a, steer, a think tank, we called it, which was akin to a steering committee. It was only when a majority of people heard about the work we were doing, who and this, the think tank was very racially mixed and gender mixed. It was very conscious of that. And um, it was only when people from Occupy started to uh, show up at meetings, which was great, you know, um, and come and then demand, um, you know, a full consensus process, full horizontality. And we really made an enormous mistake because we didn't really understand that that would lead to um, a white supremacist kind of hegemony overtaking the group that would deny that debt was racialized fundamentally and make it impossible for um, for the group to move forward in any real way because so much of the energy was coming out of the experience of uh, of the founders who were people of color very many not all but like there were at least fifty percent probably more um, and coming out of like a very specific understanding very specific experience and so. Um, so I think that the the fascinating combination of people coming in and saying it's not about race, it's about class, that immediately meant that we can forget about um, you know housing debt. One of the proposals was to actually buy land with that amount of money. We could have bought an enormous amount of land in Detroit when we could have used it to actually do a real jubilee there. Um, but people felt that that was just kind of not for them mm -hmm. and because we had allowed this um this culture of consensus which was never agreed to to somehow uh develop was just like a bizarre occurrence in how um how this white supremacist ideology was so powerful mm -hmm. um and then it also to some degree um ended up probably disallowing maybe even something like payday loans which are which is very easy debt to buy um from happening and um and so the focus became sticking to to this mission around medical debt which um in new york uh is actually um more racialized than not if you talk to people in public housing it the fascinating thing is that they have a ton of medical debt and the reason that almost everyone in public housing ends up in medical debt 
is because almost everyone actually tries, um, you know, un unlike what they tell you on TV, you know, most people try to get out of public housing at one point or another. And they do that by going into the work that's open to them, which is often low paying work that uh, where companies get out of paying health benefits by limiting hours. So I think that it's about 30 hours a week, but they'll give you just enough hours so that you cannot qualify for health insurance at extremely low pay. And so all of a sudden you have no health insurance and you become sick while you're, you know, working your way up at McDonald's, you know what I mean? And you're never going to, you know that you're never getting out of this. Now you're just working and you're getting a small amount more than you would uh, if you were just getting welfare, right? Anyway, you're working your ass off under horrible work conditions and now you don't have any insurance. And so you end up in the emergency room and then you end up getting medical debt. And then next, you have predatory, uh, a predatory um, collection system file a judgment, get a judgment against you. They bear, they don't even really serve you with papers or they do and you don't know what to do. You can't get representation. And that's how you end up with, um, with even perhaps, uh, you know, um, bank, uh, levies on your bank account and things of this, of this nature. So, um, so, but many of the other locations, you know, the Rolling Jubilee campaign works by zip code. And so you can't really identify particular debtors within a zip code. So again, you end up with this pretense of debt not being racialized and this ideology being promoted and uh, of debt not being racialized and the economy not being racialized because it's totally blind, right? It's this part and parcel with, you know, colorblind racism, ultimately, to disallow, we don't see it, you know, we're turning a blind eye and use your power to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, you know, this is part of a really interesting thing because if you start at this moment of the 70s and you frame out this whole history of how the system became racialized by doing that, right? So you start subsequent to the civil rights movement, subsequent to how people ended up in their positions in American society hierarchically, you know, um, then ultimately you end up with this very wrong analysis frank it's just simply wrong it doesn't even it's not even like a matter of like well we have different opinions or whatever it's just plain and simple wrong to think that class is um is not racialized um or not understand that and so you end up in a construct where you pre present a social movement, you pre present a campaign through a social movement that ultimately is a reinstatement of a white supremacist uh, understanding, ideology, and cannot correct white supremacy in any, in any way through forms of solidarity, through going to Detroit, through understanding uh, understanding yourself in an equal relationship with a poor person of color, you know, uh, for a white student debtor, understanding themselves as an, as in an equal relationship with a poor person of color who didn't finish high school because of the situation being the same. You deny that entire possibility, which is the only way that we could ever really challenge capitalism because that is the challenge to capitalism right there, right? 
and understanding ourselves not in in a hierarchical position to any other human being just because of where our own circumstances have by chance placed us within this and understanding that if our circumstances have placed us in a situation where we do have some power that the just way to use that power is to build um, solidarity with someone who has less power but is of course equal um, and in that sense um, the people in the Rolling Jubilee campaign who left the campaign, who were all the, you know, founding people of color, were not able to, um, to continue in under the level of white supremacy that existed, uh, that developed out of the, out of the campaign. Um, but that was something I think that was understood fundamentally in terms of being horizontal people you know, understanding ourselves as horizontal and understanding that because of that, the only way to actually challenge a, you know, the ideology of white supremacy is not through a horizontal organizing uh, structure because where consensus is, then different kinds of solidarities form and those solidarities are deeply racialized, right? And 100% of the time, uh, you know, white people will win because they have the majority. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Even if they're just 100% wrong and don't really understand history because that's been denied to to white Americans. That ability um, to understand history and to really grapple with and deal with what that history means for them on an individual, um, you know, level. The easiest thing is to just be to just deny it and deny it and withhold um with and hold on to that positionality while claiming to do social justice work and unfortunately that's what was problematic with occupy it was uh, identified right away by you know the people of color caucus immediately formed and immediately felt the need to withdraw from um, from integrated participation and rather create a safe space where uh, where people of color could exist and understand each other in equal relation um, to one another. Uh, so I think that coming out of uh, these experiences of the failure of all of the different debt campaigns, which is probably the only real source of economic power that is in the hands of the people. We stop, we can stop doing what we're doing. Um, you know, I think that it's been, you know, we need to learn from, from these, these mistakes because this is a really major failure. We raised $700,000 that was basically thrown away for no real um, for no, when used poorly, used in completely, um, uh, towards a, towards, towards reifying and reproducing a white supremacist understanding of our society is what actually happened via a white supremacist organizing style or one that allowed for white supremacy to creep in, in deep ways into our organizing structure. Um, and so... I think that, uh, you know, if, if, and I hope that we can have some other kind of a movement in this country, but I don't think that that's on the table before we get past, um, 
the enormity of the racial divide, mm. especially how that's arisen in this young generation of people who came of age during this neoliberal period and don't understand a history prior to the beginning of their own life. Mm -hmm. and, and I suppose the enormity of the issue is very much visible in the specific case of Occupy since you would think that it would be the right uh, uh, people to engage this change and if it's if you do realize that it's even there's, there's a there's a such a, a privilege uh, 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 anchor that that's uh, operating within uh, within those racial issues that that even those pe those people that uh, 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 that um, are very much uh, I mean that's where that want that's to where change intent, the world. Yeah, that's where intent right. intent is not as much relevant, right? Because, yeah, but but well, right. But, I mean that's the, exactly. I think that you're 100 percent right. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you have the group of people who are the ones who are willing to, you know, occupy a park, who really want to change the world, who at least on the surface do not uh, believe that racism is is morally right. Um, who are still within capitalism, and it's a capitalist, it's a complicated capitalist dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. That it renders, uh, you know, race conveniently invisible at moments when it needs to be the most visible to form solidarity. So it just breaks that solidarity right away. Um, yeah, so if the people who want to change the world want to change the world into a socialist state that is also still a white supremacist state, I think that's a non-starter. I think that they'll find forces that would normal under other circumstances be supportive, be 100% against them. And I can guarantee you that that's the case with um, the and turning point for uh, strike debt and for the Rolling Jubilee was when really decided that it could not be anything other than a white supremacist organization. Mm -hmm. And when you have, you know, in many cases, all the people of color asking simply for conversation around consensus, asking simply for conversation around how to deal with this dynamic and that being denied and using race and racism against those people very conveniently and cleverly and consistently, you know, I think that you really find that maybe those are not the people to change the world. And I don't think that those people will. I think that ultimately, um, you know, uh, then if we have any kind of a movement, it's really probably going to have to be led by people of color. Um, because when it's end allies or... I don't necessarily like that word allies, mm. but I think that it's probably appropriate, you know, because um, of course it's not, you know, all of any group of people acting in any particular way, but society does um, acculturate us to have understandings and looking even from a Marxist perspective, it's not... Uh, controllable to human beings, you know, when we make ourselves out of our material conditions, right? And so 
you know, if our material conditions are very different, we make our self understandings out of those conditions. And that's why it becomes very invisible, you know. And so if your self understanding as, you know, a white student debtor who does have the privilege of time, who has the privilege of money, all of this to come to a park and protest, you know, and the privilege of education, all of this, uh, theoretical ideas, philosophy, whatever. Um, if your self-understanding is that, you know, you're a victim, you're, you're, you've been harmed, that it's about class, you know, and then that's challenged, that can be very, very difficult, you know. Um, and I don't think that um, Occupy was able to, to deal with that. I think that it was underestimated it, and it continues to be underestimated how uh, shocking, how actually shocking, I think that was for many of the people of color who came out wholeheartedly wanting to create this new world only to find that the people who wanted to create it really wanted to create a very similar kind of a world. One that um, even if the economics changed but the racism and the racialization didn't change, it would not be acceptable to, to change the conditions of people of color. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So we we I think I think we we clearly have a need to learn from the from those mistakes and uh, in uh, in order to move forward. But uh, I think that concludes our conversation. Thank you so much, Pam. I think it was incredibly oh. informative and uh, inspirational. Well, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> um, I wish we had another hour. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. It's